invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 15, or you can find the passage printed on the insert that's in your bulletin. We'll be reading together John 15 verses 1 through 8. Uh, For the past several weeks, we've been in this series where we're looking at these unique statements of Jesus that are found in John's gospel. And they We've talked about how they're known as the I am statements where John records for us Jesus saying things like, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. Um, I am the gate. Uh, This morning we come to the seventh, which for most people, they look at John's gospel and they see seven I am statements. Um, And so this is the seventh where Jesus says, I am the true vine. But actually, next week, we're going to conclude this series together as we look at one final I am statement that uh, sometimes doesn't make the cut for some people, but I think is definitely in John's gospel. And we'll get to that next week. But for now, let's look to Jesus, uh, who says that he is the true vine in this passage. So I'm going to begin reading John chapter 15, verse one, and we'll read down through verse eight. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit showing yourselves to be my disciples. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go before him and ask for his help this morning. Gracious God, we come before you seeking your help by your spirit, that we might understand your word, that it would by your spirit be applied to our lives and be written upon our hearts. As we gather together today to worship, as we have heard you call us to worship, as we have sought your presence among us and confessed our sins and been reminded of the good news of the assurance of our pardon through Jesus Christ. We do this corporately, but We also recognize and understand that at the same time as we gather corporately, we are individuals and individuals with different needs and different needs have walked in this very morning. Some find themselves desperately in need of comfort, others desperately in need of assurance of your love. Still others, even assurance that you are present, um, present in this world, present in our lives, because truth is some of us are facing 
very difficult times in our lives right now and wondering where you are. Others of us are wondering, perhaps even remembering upon times where you seem so close and wondering if they can ever have that back. Still others come with a great many questions, burdened with skepticism of the truth of your word and whether or not it can be true of them personally, that they are loved by the God of the universe. We all come into this place from different walks of life, in different ways, experiencing the symptoms of living in this broken world. Some of us anxious and fearful, others excited to be here. We're just all over the map. And yet, we pray this morning that you would help us to realize that we really are all the same because no matter how we come this morning, we all are in desperate need of grace, in desperate need of truth, in desperate need of mercy and life. Because the truth is we are far more broken than we could imagine. Each one of us, we don't know the depths of our depravity. And so we all need the same thing. We together, no matter our experience, no matter the circumstances of our life right now, we need to know the same thing. We need to know that though we are far more broken than we can imagine, because of Jesus and His person and His work, it can be true of us that at the same time that we're more broken than we know, that we are also more loved than we could have ever dreamed possible. More secure than we could have ever dreamed possible. More accepted than we could have ever dreamed possible because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And so we pray that you would help us to see Jesus this morning and help us to apply the good news to our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When, <clears throat> when you read, take the time to read through the Gospels um, and you know, the book of Acts, uh, you see, you encounter these stories of peoples whose lives were changed in radical and dramatic ways. Um, like, for instance, the story of a prostitute who comes to Jesus and anoints him and, and wipes his feet with her tears. I mean, such a radical dramatic change taking place in her life, a 180-degree turn in her life. Uh, the story of Zacchaeus is one of my favorites. I mean, he's this thieving tax collector, but then he changed radically, dramatically. I mean, he came to know Jesus, and he didn't just pay back the money he stole. He paid it back four times the amount. He went above and beyond this selfish, greedy man, all of a sudden radically changed into this generous giver, over-the-top generous. Um, you, you think about the Apostle Paul, right? The great theologian, the church planter who wrote the majority of the books in your New Testament. Um, 
That's a crazy direction for his life to have taken, considering the fact that he was trying to stamp out the existence of the church, trying to persecute Christians and kill Christians. Uh, and he's radically changed, right? He, he, as you read through these stories, even people who are possessed by demons, right, hurling insults at Jesus, all of a sudden they, they change and they're turned into heralds of the good news, proclaiming the gospel. There really are a whole, whole lot of stories like this in the gospels of people being radically changed. And, you know, I think when we're honest with ourselves and, you know, we're not always honest with ourselves, um, but when we are honest and when we are thinking clearly about our lives and we are sober in our thinking, we we know that we want to change. Right. We we want we want the solid hope that we can grow, that we can become something different, that there that there can be a freedom that can come into our life to stop us from being one thing and and start us being something different. Um, And if that's not you, there may be a slight variation to that, because maybe you have tried so hard to change in the past, but it it didn't last And it wasn't deep enough. And for those of you, you have likely become very cynical about this, um, questioning and wondering if real change that's deep and lasting is even possible in this life. But the funny thing is, I think about human beings, is that this desire for change is so deeply ingrained in who we are. That even if we've grown cynical and hard, doubting if real change is even possible, we still really want to believe that it's possible. Want to believe that it can happen. And then I come along this morning and I I, kind of make things worse, right? Because I stand up and I rub salt in some of your wounds, right? Uh, With all these... Bible examples of dramatic and radical change. And and what happens when I do that for some of you is that the cynicism springs back to life, right? And for some of you, you begin to even at this very moment sense despair because you don't feel like you have that kind of testimony of radical change. Um, And maybe for some of you, you just feel a real disconnect. You know, these seem like fairy tales uh, to you. Um, And I think that's fair enough for now. We're not going to get into all that. But here we are in John chapter 15. And it's my privilege to share with you this morning this good news. That real, deep, substantive, inside-out transformation is possible. You can have, and I can have, and we can experience it. You can turn 180 degrees and move in an entirely new direction in your life. The most self-centered among us in this room can become radically generous. The cowardly can become courageous, right? The most impulsive of us can become steady as a rock. The manipulator can become a liberator, right? The hard can become tender. The bitter and the angry can become fountains of grace and mercy. The proud and the self-righteous can become humble and compassionate. But here's the deal, okay? You can't get there. And you cannot have this change by digging deeper into yourself. 
That's not how the, the prostitute, that's not how Zacchaeus, that's not how the Apostle Paul changed so radically and dramatically. You only get this change in your life when you dig deeper into Jesus. I mean, because I think that's what Jesus is saying in this passage. He is saying, I am the true vine, right? I am the answer to your longing for real, deep, and lasting change. Okay, so here we go. We can experience change and growth when we are connected to the vine, when we're pruned by the gardener, and as we remain in the vine. So first, you have to be connected to the vine. This metaphor that Jesus uses, it's a rich metaphor, and it's such a great metaphor that he uses in verse 1 when he calls himself the true vine because it takes us straight to the very foundation of change, right? You cannot change deeply. You can't have radical inside-out lasting transformation in your life unless you are connected to the vine, right? The sap, right? I mean, the life, it flows from the vine into the branches. Only when life is flowing from the vine to the branches is there going to be growth. Is there going to be fruit? Is there going to be changed? We're not going to get too detailed here, but I want for just a, a moment to stretch our biblical muscles for a second. Because, see, it's really fascinating that Jesus picks up and uses this metaphor to describe himself. And it's really fascinating that he says that he is the Not just the vine, but the true vine. Because you see, there's an awful lot of places in the Old Testament where the imagery of the vine is used. And that imagery in the Old Testament is used to describe Israel, the people of God. So you get like Isaiah chapter 5, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. Psalm 80, watch over this vine, the root your right hand has planted. Jeremiah 2, I I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. Hosea 10, Israel was a spreading vine. And there's a lot of other examples we could choose from. But here's the deal. You have to pay attention to the context because each time in the Old Testament that Israel, the nation of Israel, the people of God, each time they are called and described as the vine, it comes in the context where what is being emphasized in each of those places is the vine's failure to produce good fruit. Each passage I just mentioned does this, but let me just build on one to give you an example. From Isaiah chapter 5, we heard, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest of vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. And it goes on and it gets worse from there as it describes the people's fruitlessness. Every time it shows up, that's what happens. And I don't want us to lose sight of the forest for the trees here. But look, those prophets, all those prophets, all that failure described over years and years and years, a vineyard, a vine that won't produce fruit. And every time the gardener comes to look and see if there's good fruit there, he comes and he finds that it's just more of the same, more bad fruit, no real, no deep, no lasting change or growth, right? You are not the first person to feel cynical and hopeless, wondering if real change and growth might just be a pipe dream. This had been happening for a long, long time. But then Jesus comes and he says, I am the true vine that bears fruit. Right. I am everything that Israel 
was meant to be before God. And if he's saying, and if you get connected to me, and if you get connected to my life, you are going to change. I will bear my fruit through you because I am the true vine. This is going to sound so unrelated at first, but just bear with me. Um, one Saturday morning, uh, several months ago, uh, my wife Jennifer got up uh, to get in her car and was going to take the car somewhere. But when she hit the the button on the garage door wall, you know, the garage door opener, nothing happened. Just the door wouldn't come up. And uh, so she told me about it. And so I went out there and looked at it. And so I, I hammered the button like a dozen times, too. And surprised nothing happened, right? And eventually I had to unhook. I got up and I unhooked the the motor and all that kind of stuff from the chain and lifted it up manually and she was able to go. And by that time, you know, the car was out and so I could get a chair in there and and look at it, take a closer look, because I know so much about these things. Um, so I climbed up, and I'm like taking panels off and pushing things and wiggling and all kinds of things, but nothing, you know, of course. Um, I don't know what I'm doing. But somewhere in there, I noticed that the little light on my freezer in the garage, that's the little orange light at the bottom, you know, that's supposed to tell you it's on, that it's not on. And so I look at that and I start connecting the dots, right? Okay, maybe a fuse has been blown, right? So I get down off the chair and that kind of thing. And I I go and I I find out, sure enough, you know, a fuse has been blown. And, you know, without electricity flowing into that room, to the freezer, to the garage door, whatever, I could wiggle and I could jam and I could twist and I could turn all I wanted to. But nothing was going to happen until electricity. So I flipped the fuse back on, right? And voila, everything starts working again because electricity is flowing again. And the freezer came back to life. <laughs> and the garage door started working again. You know, I think, I think this explains a lot of your attempts and my attempts at change in life. And why we are left with such meager and miserable results. Because we are addicted to techniques, and how-tos, and more discipline, and work harder, and maybe we throw in an extra measure of guilt, or shame, or pride, or fear as motivation to try and do better next time. Just jiggling, and wiggling, and turning, and twisting, and pushing, and prodding, but nothing. There's no spark. There's no electricity. There's no life. At best, the change you get when you do that is superficial and external, right? Maybe you are able a time or two to lift the door manually. Stop some bad habits, maybe, and maybe even start doing some good things. But you know that the change is just superficial and external. It can't and it will not last because the change is just external and mechanical. It's just external mechanical compliance when what you really need is living, organic, inside-out transformation, We're going to build on this as we go. But that's the kind of change that Jesus is after and promises that you can have if you get connected to the true vine that bears fruit. Change that flows from a heart that is alive and pulsating and beating and free. Okay, second, let's go on to talk about being pruned by the gardener. It's real interesting in this passage that Jesus not only uses a metaphor to describe himself, but he also picks up a metaphor in order to describe his father, right? Verse 1, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. 
The vine gives life, but Jesus is saying the gardener's work is essential too, right? Because it's the gardener who watches over. It's the gardener who cultivates so that the vine flourishes and bears as much fruit as possible. And so you see in this passage that the tool that the gardener uses to do his work is a knife, right? So with that knife, the gardener, one, he cuts away what is dead, and two, he prunes back what is alive so that it will bear more fruit. Now, here's my, my simple point that I, I, I want to try and make it here. The knife of the gardener, it lands on every branch. No branch is spared from the knife of the gardener, right? Verse 2, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so it will bear even more fruitful the knife It comes to every one of us, and it takes a skilled gardener to do this kind of work. In fact, maybe you've driven by in your neighborhood or, you know, a gardener, a landscaper out doing his work, doing this very thing. And to the untrained eye, somebody like me, it looks like the gardener is just destroying the plant or the bush or the vine or the tree or whatever. I mean, so many branches left on the side of the road, right? So for, for the trash guy to come pick up the next morning. And, and some of them look dead, but some of them look really good too and green. And the bush or the tree in the wake of that, it just, it looks like it's been destroyed. But the, the skilled gardener knows better than you. Everything he does, he is doing so that the vine bears as much fruit as possible. Now, Kelly Clarkson, uh, she didn't invent the phrase, but she sings in a popular song of hers. um, What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Some of you have heard that song. Um, But you need to make note of this because it's probably the first time and the last time that Kelly Clarkson is going to get quoted from the pulpit. But, But I want you to think about that phrase for just a minute. Uh, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Uh, well, yes and no, right? If your life is in the vine, then yes. The gardener's knife comes, and even though he cuts, he's actually making you stronger, more fruitful, because he never cuts the vine that would kill the plant. What the gardener does is he prunes back the branches so that more of the life of the vine, right, can flow through the branches. But if you aren't connected to the vine, then the knife comes and actually takes your life and cuts you off. The knife breaks you away if you aren't connected to the vine. I'm going to try and apply this. I'm going to try and apply it negatively and then positively. But I want you to think through this with me. What is life to you? I mean, what is it that you look at your life and you say, this is what makes life worth living to me? What is your bottom line? I mean, the thing you tell, that you tell yourself, I, as long as I have that, I'll be okay or I'll be happy. And if that's taken away from me, I'll be destroyed. You know, a great way to find that out is to ask yourself, what is it that you think about? What is it that you dream about when there's nothing else to think about? I mean, where does your heart naturally go to say this is life to me? I mean, to your career, to your reputation, to your family, to your material wealth, to sex, to power, to romance. It could be anything. 
It could be something very, very good, but whatever that is, that is your bottom line, your definition for life. And so think about it. If the gardener's knife comes to you and cuts your career, if that is life to you, how you know who you are in this world, you won't just be sad and disappointed, which is normal. You'll be crushed. You'll be destroyed. You'll be killed. If the knife comes to your reputation, if, if it's the good opinions of others that is life to you, then rejection just doesn't just hurt and sting. It destroys you. The knife comes to your family and it sends you into a devastating tailspin instead of just normal disappointment and pain. See, if your life is not in the vine, then whatever kills you makes you weaker. It makes you less. It cuts you off. It actually takes your life. But let's look at the other side. But what if your life is in the vine? The gardener's knife comes to you too. And I think we ought to be, we ought to be realistic about this, right? It's a knife. And, and a knife cuts. And that means it's going to hurt. But do you realize how untouchable your life is if your life is in the vine in Jesus? Because the gardener, he doesn't cut the vine. So the gardener can come in and he can cut into your career and cut into your family and cut into your material wealth or your sex life, your position of power, whatever. And it will hurt and it will make you sad and you will grieve the loss. But it cannot touch your life. It can never touch your life. If your real identity and your real security and your real source of joy and your bottom line is Jesus. In fact, more than that, Jesus is saying it will make you draw even harder on the life that is in the vine. See, if Jesus is my bottom line, the one who defines me, if he is my life, then the loss of anything in this life, though it hurts and is painful, it makes me cling more deeply to him. And when you begin to draw more deeply on the one who is holiness himself, the one who is full of grace and truth, the one who is the fulfillment of righteousness itself, the one who is full of compassion and loving kindness. Just guess what it does when you're drawing on that for everything. It begins to blossom forth in your life and you begin to change from the inside out and it's change that is real and deep and substantial. And all of a sudden you find yourself becoming more steady and more gracious and more courageous and humble and generous and tender and strong all at the same time. Because you are drawing on the life of the vine when the gardener comes and he prunes. Okay, last, let's talk about remaining in the vine. To have this real change in your life, you've got to be connected to the vine. You have to be pruned by the Father. But now I get to talk to you a little bit more directly about what you need to do with this. And what this passage is saying that you need to do is you need to, you have to remain. Or another translation that you might have, you have to abide, live in the vine. See, verse 4, Jesus says, remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Verse five, if a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Verse seven, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. There's a, a key word there, right? That shows up a lot, remain. But the question is, what in the world does that mean? And how, how do you do it? How do you remain in the vine? Real quick, I'm going to give you three things to do. This means to remain in him means to know him, 
to stay put and to rest in his love. First, know him. Instead of doing a whole thing here, just notice in verse 7 that Jesus combines prayer and his word. Combines them together. Then later in John chapter 15, verse we didn't read, but verse 15, Jesus says to these same people, he says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I've made known to you. Jesus calls you his friend and he wants deep intimacy with you. You know, I mean, you just think about your friendships that you have in this life. How do you cultivate and foster and develop your friendships? It, it really is very simple. You do things like talk and listen. You do, you do things like make yourself known to another person and actually get to know another person, right? Jesus, he's saying, remain in me. And I'm asking you, are you cultivating a life of intimacy with Jesus, praying, that is talking to him and meditating on his word, that is listening. He wants deep intimacy with you. And you cannot have that intimacy if you come here one day a week and ignore him the rest of the week, just like it wouldn't work in your real friendships. The second thing you have to see is that you, you and I are meant to stay put. I mean, Jesus is telling you about the gardener's pruning knife, right? So that you won't be surprised in this life by things like suffering and loss and pain and disappointment and grief. Right? And he is assuring you what the, that when the knife comes, it is only to make you better, only to make you greater, only to make you more of what you are meant to be. And this means that you have to learn how to stay put even under the knife. I mean, kind of mixed metaphors here a little bit, but I think there's a real good reason that when you go in to the doctor for surgery, that the anesthesiologist comes in and he knocks you out and puts you under. I mean, it's not just so that you won't feel the pain, although I'm sure that's a part of it, but it's also so that when you see the surgeon get out his scalpel, that you won't like freak out and start squirming all around on the table because that would be a disaster that the one who has come to heal you so delicately and to cut into you so precisely you're wiggling around it's gonna it's gonna ruin you not heal you i'm sure it would be very normal for you to freak out so the anesthesiologist puts you out because what you need to do is stay put so that he can do his work and the same thing when the father comes to prune and it hurts and you're suffering and you're crying and you're wondering why And Jesus is saying, I'm telling you this so that you know to stay put when the pruning knife comes out because it's only to make you better, only to make you you grow, only to make you bear more fruit in this life. And then third thing that you got to do to remain is rest in his love. We didn't read it, but verse 9, which comes right after the passage we read, Jesus says this, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain, there's that word again, remain in my love. This is huge. To remain in Jesus, you have to remain in his love. For many of you, it is so hard for you just to get out of the starting gate here. Because intellectually, you know the good news. And you've got the right theology and all that kind of stuff. 
But intellectually knowing the good news is very different from experiencing the good news. And when Jesus says remain or abide in my love, he is talking about experience. See, many of you know it intellectually, but in experience you feel like Jesus is disappointed with you and ashamed of you, maybe even angry with you, you know, kind of arms crossed, looking down his nose, tapping his foot at you kind of impression of Jesus. That is not experiencing and abiding his love, if that's your view of him. It's not resting and abiding in his love. And you cannot expect, nor, nor can I expect, that there will ever be much change in my life if I don't get this. You need his love to wash over you, to fill you, to satisfy you, to complete you, to make you whole, to set you free. How else is he going to become your bottom line in this life if you don't know that? Look, sorry about that. We're going to try and get that fixed for next week. Um, Look, your insecure heart and mine has immense trouble with everything that I just said. We are skeptical and we are doubtful that Jesus really wants to be our friend. Right? We we, We are We are skeptical. We doubt that his love could ever be enough to satisfy us and whether the gardener's knife is really for our good. And I'm not being sarcastic here at all because I get it. I understand that. As someone once said, you know, in in a competition between video and audio, video always wins out. Right. You always pay attention to that. And here I'm and here I come telling you to listen and believe Right. While your career or the opinions of others or romance or wealth is right there in front of you in high definition for you to grab and hold on and try to satisfy yourself with. And you think that's what I have to have. Trust me, I'm just like you. I get it through and through. And so, you know what? It, it is with the eyes of faith that you need to see something. If you are ever going to remain in the vine and what you need to see with the eyes of faith is the cross in verse 13 of this passage. I should have printed off a lot more of the passage, but in verse 13 of this passage, Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Do you understand that there is no greater love than this? Because you see, your career or your family or your wealth or the opinions of others, they will never die for you. In fact, they will make you die for them. And Jesus is saying, look and see the cross. This is my love for you, that I am willing to die for you. I am willing to be cut off to bring you in. I was ultimately cut off so that you would only ever be pruned under the gardener's knife. I love you so much that I was willing to live and die in your place so that I could have you forever. You know, I kind of left that first point intentionally kind of hanging out there, you know, to really change. You have to be connected to the vine. But how do you get connected to the vine? This is it. You get connected to the vine when you leave all of those other things you thought you so desperately had to have. And you make Jesus your bottom line and trust in him because he laid down his life for you to bring you in. And when you do that, he will become your life and he will bear his fruit through you. So will you? 
Will you remain in Him? Will you know Him? Will you stay put? Will you rest in His love? He is the true vine. He is life itself that can come into your life and change you from the inside out. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and we, it's appropriate that we would begin even now to think about what we need to confess. That we have so often tried to run away from you and run away from your pruning knife when you have sought only our good. It is right for us to come and confess that we, even as we sang earlier, that we are prone to wonder and prone to leave the God we love. We're prone to walk away in search of other things to satisfy us and make us whole and we think we have to have. Father, forgive us of all of these things. Change us deeply, we pray. Change us radically, change us abruptly because we find life in the vine. Father, help us in the midst of the day in and day out pressures of this life to sink ourselves more deeply into Jesus, to cling more deeply on him, to draw more deeply from the life that is in him, that we might bear fruit and bear fruit to your glory in this world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.